thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Good morning, Chris. Good morning. We start off before we take listeners' questions, and they're already calling in, so uh, very keen to engage you this morning. But there's a story about a new robot that what apparently tracks sick bees. Yep. So this is trying to get a handle on what's going on with the bee population across the world. And in particular, why bees may or may not be affected by pesticides, and specifically a class of pesticides called neonicotinoids. As the name suggests, these are nicotine-shaped molecules that are used to affect the insect nervous system. And they're usually added to seeds when we plant plants, and that way the whole plant is imbued with this chemical and infused with it, so that as the plant grows, it's protected against herbivory by insect pests. The problem is that the chemicals also leach into the nectar, so when harmless pollinators like honeybees and bumblebees and other pollinators like moths come along, they drink the nectar and they're exposed to the the chemicals at, at low level. Now everyone said the level is so low it won't actually affect them, but actually we know already that there's damage done to foraging behaviour by these bees. But could the damage be even more severe? No one knew what was going on inside the bees' nests because it's very hard to look inside a bee nest and see how bees are behaving. But what James Kroll, who's a researcher at Harvard, has published in the journal Science this week is the first analysis doing just this. And what they've invented are these little tiny bee backpacks, as he put it to me, which are little squares of paper with a QR code, that funny square pattern of black dots and weird shapes that you can scan with your mobile phone. And they stick these onto the fluffy backs of all of the bumblebees in a bumblebee nest, and then they use a camera and a computer to track every individual bee in terms of its movements, who it talks to, when it does it, when it comes, when it goes. And in this way, you can build up a picture of normal bee behaviour and then they can expose the bees to different concentrations of these neonicotinoids in field-relevant concentrations. In other words, if this were a real nest and these were out in the wild foraging, the concentrations they're being exposed to would be reflective of what they're likely to encounter. And the result is the bee behaviour inside the nest is grossly affected. The bees don't communicate with each other as well. They back away from the the centre, the core nest. It's a bit like you avoiding the nightclub in the middle of town where you normally frequent to go and find out what's going on around town. They don't do that. They don't look after their young as well. So they change their activity in very gross ways. And the point that James Kral is making and, and made to me earlier this week is, well, look, there's clearly a change in the behaviour of these bees inside their nest. There's a change outside the nest these chemicals are affecting them. We really need to have a conversation about this because these are the world's most popular pesticides at the moment. They're in use all over the world and we rely on pollinators to feed us because if they don't do their job pollinating plants, we don't grow crops and we can't eat. Rod, good morning. Good morning, Eusebius. Welcome Uh, to the show. My, my, uh, well, what I found in about is a lady found in last week about an egg boiler. That's right. and uh, I think uh, the, the thing is, it wasn't a boiler, it was a steamer, because I've got a similar thing. And the, the interesting part is the more eggs you, you boil, or 
or steam, the less water you use. Mm. And I'm sure Chris would know the reason for that. My boiler's got a, a little tray where you can put in up to seven eggs. And it has a cover over it with a hole at the top, so there's a certain amount of steam can exit the thing. And at a certain point, it gives you a little buzzer and says it's, your eggs are ready. And Chris, I'm sure you know why you need less water for more eggs. We were trying to work this out last week um, because the instructions were not made clear. And uh, I did say if anyone could send me the details of who makes it, then I can get in touch with them and ask them for their rationale because I'm not clear based on on what's been said on the programme why they they work the way they work. And uh, sure, if I could have a look at the device, then I'm sure we could all work this out. John, good morning. Welcome to the show. Hi. Um, Yes, I wanted to ask you, Chris, um, if anything is known about the deja vu phenomenon I seem to get that quite a lot, and it's quite unnerving. Hello, John. very unnerving, yeah. And there's this gag that we keep cracking on this show about, haven't we answered this before? (laughs) And the answer is we really have. I wasn't going to go there. No, no, but but we really have visited this, but not not today. So don't be unnerved, John. We haven't talked about your question today, but we have talked about it in the past. Um, This is one of those funny phenomena which... We, we don't understand very well because it's very hard to test anything other than a human and therefore there are ethical constraints on how you can test this out. But what appears to be happening when a person has deja vu is that the circuit in the brain that triggers that flash of familiarity seems to be inappropriately engaged at certain moments. So when we think we recognise something or somebody, as well as you recalling information about them, there's a second circuit in the brain that gives you that sort of ooh, that's novel, or ooh, I've been here before, that reflection and that sudden inspiration. Now, it would appear that when you get these funny experiences, it's that circuit being turned on when it shouldn't be. Now, this can happen for a range of reasons. Sometimes it can be that an experience is so close to the thing that you do remember that the the two memories get confused. The other is that when you're very tired, and we know that tiredness, sleep deprivation and uh, stress can all provoke this, and people who get very jet-lagged will often say that in the day after their travel they'll have a number of these momentary funny deja vu experiences and it is probably because when your brain is tired the regulation of which circuits are turned on and which circuits are turned off and when is slightly less tight and rigorously controlled compared with when you're fresh as a daisy so i suspect that what's happening in you is just the same as everybody else but fewer people talk about it and worry about it but it's probably because you need to get more sleep It can also be linked to inappropriate activity in certain bits of the nervous system, but I don't think that's an issue in a a person. There'd probably be other symptoms uh, that that would go along with that. But that's probably the reason. It's the the inappropriate activation of the familiarity circuits in your brain when they shouldn't be turned on. Thanks, John. Thanks for your question. David, good morning. Hi, good morning. Thank you for taking my question. My question concerns those flat uh, fridge magnets, the ones that often have adverts on them. If I take two of them, No matter how I line them up, they attract. How come they don't repel each other? Uh, It's it's just because of the the way that they've actually probably built the magnet. I mean, they're they're usually used just normal... Sometimes they use rare earth magnets, but usually they use just normal magnets, and they've probably just shoved the magnet in in such a way that you're, you're going to end up with a north and a south touching each other. But I'll have to do the experiment myself. I haven't, I haven't actually seen, seen the phenomenon, so I'll go away and do a test on my own fridge magnets and see what I find. And if anyone else can test this independently, do, do let us know, and then we'll investigate properly and get you the right answer. Tony, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning. And my question is, 
what causes the tea stain, the tea stain ring around one's mug? Interestingly, one doesn't get the same ring in a teapot. What causes this and why the difference? And the stain is also very difficult to remove. Hi, Tony. The answer to this is that uh, when you lose some tea over the side of your teacup, then it dries onto the surface and it's hot, so it evaporates. And as a result, you leave there at that point on the surface the particles of tea and especially the tannins, which are the very dark, bitter chemicals that are in the tea that give it partly its colour but also its flavour. There's a, there's a suspension of those in the liquid. And when the water evaporates, it locks those tannin molecules into the surface. Now, because they're, they're a bit heavy, um, when you uh, have a teapot sitting there for hours on end, it does make a ring. And you'll see that where the liquid surface was, there'll be a ring, but also most of the stuff will sit at the bottom because the heavier stuff will, will settle. So you do get a ring in the teapot. You're just less likely to notice it probably because A, there's already loads of staining inside the teapot and B, um, you don't go looking in the teapot very often. Whereas your teacup, um, you will have spilt it over the side. It will be nice and hot and it will then evaporate down to dryness very quickly, leaving all of the stuff in one place. Whereas in the teapot, more of the material is smeared over a bigger area, so it's a more gradual change in colour, whereas the, the ring tends to stand out much more profoundly because all the stuff is in one confined space. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Sciences. 19 after 10, we're taking your questions um, about science with Chris, the Naked Scientist. Joseph, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Sirius. Uh, I want to know, are there any exact uh, scientific ways of determining um, someone's exact date of birth? Thank you. Listen from the radio. Hi, Joseph. We had a wonderful question from South Africa a number of years ago where someone phoned up and said, could they carbon date their grandma? And uh, they were very intrigued to know whether she really was 100 years old or not because she thought she might be, but she didn't know exactly when she was born. And we looked into this a bit because although it's impossible to give the precise date of birth, it is possible to get a pretty accurate age for somebody. And you can do it by carbon dating. There's a lady called Kirsty Spalding, and she works, I think, at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden. And she's done a lot of studies looking at the incorporation of radiocarbon into the human body and using this to age tissues because she was very interested in answering the question how old different cells in different parts of the body are because some cells, we're told, we have them, we make them when we're developing inside our mothers, we have to make them last a lifetime. Other cells we make on the fly all the way through our lives and so she wanted to find out how old different cells are and the way she did it was to use radiocarbon dating. Now the way radiocarbon dating is uh, works is that when an animal eats a plant because plants are exchanging carbon with the atmosphere and the atmosphere contains at low frequency a radioactive form of carbon called carbon-14 the plant becomes a little bit radioactive. When you eat the the plant you become a little bit radioactive and the level of radiation in you will be proportional to how much radiation there is in the air and as you then or when you're then stopping making any more or incorporating any more of that radiocarbon into the tissue the radioactivity will slowly disappear in that tissue and because we know how fast the radioactivity disappears we can wind the clock back and work out how much there must have been there to start with and when. 
Now, you, you can therefore date different tissues this way with a reasonable degree of accuracy, actually using what's called the bomb peak. Because in the 1950s, there were lots of atomic bomb tests around the world, which put lots more radioactive species into the atmosphere which we can use because we know those levels very precisely. So at the moment you can get a pretty accurate dating for different parts of a person and therefore the person as a whole, but you couldn't actually determine their precise date, uh, date of birth because the system wouldn't be sufficiently accurate to do that. Pauline, good morning. Good morning. Um, please could I ask a question? How does a person accumulate mercury and lead in one's body? I've recently had some medical tests done and they found very high levels of mercury and lead. Hi, Pauline. The answer to this is th these are environmental exposures. The uh, metals you refer to, mercury and lead, are referred to as heavy metals. They're often used in industry or they are a product of industry or they can exist in certain environments. If you've been drinking water, for example, which has filtered through rocks which are laced with these chemicals, then it gets into the groundwater, and if you drink the water, there will be some of these metals dissolved as salts in the water. They will be absorbed into the body, and if you live in the area for a long period of time, or you breathe the air with these things in it for a long period of time, or you, you ingest them in other ways, you will slowly accumulate them, because when they get into the body, because they're not normally supposed to be in the body and they're coming in over a long period of time at low level, they can slowly accumulate because there's none in the body, there's lots in what you're drinking, therefore some moves into your tissues, and they accumulate. And they tend to go where the blood goes. So they'll accumulate in tissues like the brain, they accumulate in other places like the liver, where the blood supply is high, and there are various um, reasons why they might like to sit in those cells. So that's why you, you would pick them up. It must be an environmental exposure of some sort, food, water, or the air. Sydney, good morning. What is your question? Is there any proof that the mermaids exist? That, that what exists, uh, Sydney? Mermaid. Mermaids. Okay. Yeah. Uh, mermaids yes. are a myth, my friend, uh, unfortunately, um, because they are very beautiful, these mermaids, but they're, they're as far as we know, uh, uh, they're probably a legacy of seafarers' myths. So when sailors used to go off, they had very long journeys ahead of them, and to keep themselves amused and entertained, they would sing songs and tell stories. And I suspect that uh, mermaids and, and this sort of longing for home and islands full of beautiful ladies and that kind of thing probably kept these, because they were almost exclusively men on these boats, would have kept them amused on their long sea voyages. So I suspect that's where the myth came, comes from. There's, there's not any evidence for human equivalent. There is a human condition called ichthyosis, and this is where people develop a skin condition which gives them very th very thickened, scaly skin that looks like fish scales, hence ichthyosis. But they certainly don't have any of the other characteristics of mermaids, and that's an unfortunate condition to have. It's certainly not a bonus. Thank you for your question, Sydney. Justice, good morning. Morning, uh, morning, Yusubias. Morning, Chris. My question is, why do balloons, inflated balloons, defy gravity? Because you release that thing into the air, it just keeps going up. Uh, you'll never see it coming down. Why is that? Does it mean there's a lot of balloons in space, perhaps? Hello, Justice. The, well, I guess you're referring probably to, to helium balloons that float. Yes. And the reason that they float is because helium is one of the lightest elements in the universe. It's single atoms, and therefore if you fill a balloon with helium, it, it inflates the balloon because the gas is under pressure. But when you weigh 
the amount of gas in the balloon plus the plastic or polythene or rubber the balloon is made of, it ends up weighing less because the helium is so light than the air that the balloon is pushing out of the way. And if you push out of the way a bigger mass of air than you weigh yourself, then the air pushes back on you upwards harder then you're pushing down, so you float. And this is the same reason a boat floats, or if you jump into a swimming pool, the same reason that you don't sink like a stone to the bottom of the pool, because you're pushing out of the way a bigger volume in terms of mass of water than your body weighs itself. Therefore, the water pushes up on you harder than you're pushing down, so you float. And so these balloons will float in the air, and they'll keep rising until they're no longer pushing out of the way a bigger mass of air than they weigh themselves. And remember that as you go up in the atmosphere, the air becomes thinner. Therefore, the amount of air that you're moving out of the way by your balloon sitting there is going to drop the higher you go. And therefore, as your balloon ascends, it will feel a lower and lower force pushing it upwards. So eventually the balloon will get to a height where it can't go any higher Or, more likely, because the pressure is dropping around the balloon with higher altitude, the balloon is going to expand and stretch, and therefore it's probably going to go pop. So it will eventually come down. You have to engineer your balloon quite cleverly to make sure it doesn't go bang at very high altitude. Thank you, Justice. Henry, welcome. Hi, thank you. Hi, Chris. A question about uh, the rainbow. Uh, If you look at a rainbow, you see a pattern of colours. But if you look at the second rainbow... And, uh, the colours are the opposite side. Is that a reflection or is there any other reason for it? Hi, Henry. Well, what's happened with the rainbow is that light from the sun is coming over your shoulder because you need the sun illuminating a, a nice, rainy, wet bit of sky. So the light, which is white light, which is a mixture of all the colours you see in a rainbow, it's just that when it goes in our eye, our eye sees it as white, that white light goes into the dark, rainy sky, goes into raindrops... When the light goes into the raindrop, it's going from one medium, which is gas, into another medium, which is liquid, and this causes light to change its speed. And when it causes it to change its speed, it causes it to bend. And different wavelengths or colours of light are bent by different amounts. So when when the light goes into each raindrop, it splits up into a spectrum. It then goes inside the raindrop, hits the back of the raindrop, which actually is a very shiny mirrored surface and it reflects each of these individual light colours back and out of the front of the raindrop. So you see the colours all spread out in the sky in a sort of arc, and that is the the curve or cone of light that is the inside surface of the raindrops reflecting back at you. That's the first rainbow. Where's the second one come from? Well, some of the light, not much, but some, sees the surface of the raindrop closest to you as another mirror, and it reflects off that and then does the journey again. And in the process of doing that, of course, it's flipping the light round further. So what you then see is the second rainbow with its sequence of colours outside the first one, but dimmer because less light has made that journey twice. Most of the light came out from the front of the raindrop and you saw a nice bright first rain- rainbow. Here's in a final question from Devon in Cape Town. Devon, what is your question? Good morning, Chris. Um, I hear that um, it's not actually the bad cholesterol that causes heart attacks, but it's actually the oxidised cholesterol that causes heart attacks. Can you explain that concept to us, please? Yeah, hi, Devon. First of all, what's a heart attack? A heart attack occurs when there's a deficiency of blood flow down a coronary artery in the heart to supply the needs of the muscle. The artery becomes blocked in an acute event like a heart attack because usually the wall of the artery has split apart and exposed 
some very inflammatory debris and connective tissue to the elements of the blood which then form a blood clot or thrombus in the vessel and that then blocks the vessel causing the heart attack. The most usual place where these splitting open of the vessel walls occur is in places where there are are, are narrowings called atheromatous plaques. These atheromatous plaques, if you look at them down a microscope, are full of necrotic, that means dead, fatty material, which is full of cholesterol. If you analyse the cholesterol, you find that it's not the normal just LDL, so-called bad cholesterol that you find naturally in your bloodstream. You find that it's been chemically altered or oxidised. It has, on the side of the cholesterol molecule, there's a side chain of carbon atoms and some extra oxygen has been added there. Now, the effect of that... It's probably oxidised because the inflammatory environment of the wall of the vessel causes it to get oxidised. But when it does that, the cholesterol molecule becomes much tastier for inflammatory cells that want to eat it and they pick it up and accumulate it and they become big, fat, bloated, congested cells called foamy macrophages and those are sitting in these these cholesterol-rich narrowings in the walls of arteries and it appears to be that oxidation or oxidisation of the cholesterol molecule that makes it more likely to accumulate in these cells and they can't get rid of it so they become frustrated and they then continue to make inflammation in the wall of the vessel and that's what makes the, the plaque break down and ultimately triggers the heart attack. Thank you, Chris, for sharing your knowledge with us. Have a lovely weekend and week ahead. I'll chat to you again next week, Friday. I'll see you next time, everybody. Bye-bye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.